0: Few Democrats have been more aggressive and pugnacious in going after Donald Trump and his political allies in Congress than Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. Swalwell served as a House manager in the second impeachment trial of the former president, and despite the acquittal, he has continued to pursue Trump, filing a lawsuit against him, his son, Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and a Republican colleague in the House, Mo Brooks, for their role in inciting the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. His rhetoric about Republicans in the House in recent weeks has become increasingly harsh, making it clear he wants no social contacts with them, and in one cable TV appearance, even accused the GOP of being, quote, the pro-slavery, anti-police party. At the same time, Swalewal has pushed back against the Trump Justice Department's subpoena to get records of his emails and phone calls, demanding that anybody in the department, including career prosecutors who took part in this, should be fired. We'll talk to Swalwell about his clashes with Trump officials and his Republican colleagues, as well as about the new updated edition of his book, Endgame, Inside the Impeachments of Donald J. Trump, on this edition of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend. Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.
1: So help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
0: So help me God. I'm Michael Liskoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
2: I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News.
3: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice.
0: And it is uh, appropriate in a way that um, we are having uh, Swalwell on the pod this week. This is the sixth month anniversary of the January 6th uh, assault on the U.S. Capitol. It's an event that continues to uh, dominate our politics. Ongoing investigations by the Justice Department. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has just created this uh, special committee to investigate the events of January 6th. A lot of questions about how far it can go uh, in advancing the ball. But Swalwell has been so in the middle of uh, all of this, it'll be good to hear his perspective.
2: Uh, yeah, I was going to say Swalwell does have a knack for being in the middle of uh, these yes. uh, high, high profile um, issues and, and controversies. He, of course, was a uh, impeachment manager in the second impeachment, which was revolved around the January 6th assault. He has uh, filed he was also his- also a
0: big, big player in the Intelligence Committee investigation right. into Russia. That's how I got to know him yeah. uh, quite a bit in those- uh, in Yeah, those although things. he wasn't
2: picked as a, as a manager for the first impeachment, which was a disappointment to him. He's filed uh, this lawsuit, as you mentioned, and he now has this- has this book. He is not, however, going to be um, a member of Nancy Pelosi's select committee to investigate the January 6th assault. Uh, That's one of the things that is happening now as well. The members of that committee have been chosen. Another regular on the podcast, Jamie Raskin, is a member. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk to him. Of course, Liz Cheney, this was really the remarkable thing that happened is that Nancy Pelosi did select Liz Cheney, who until fairly recently had been the third ranking Republican in the House. And of course, from a storied and important Republican family, the Cheney family. Um, So that was interesting. It'll be interesting to to see how, how that plays out.
0: But a lot of questions about how much this can really, uh, how far they can really go. I mean, yeah. will subpoenas be honored by the select committee? We still no. don't even know, right, Victoria, <laughs> if, if uh, who, if anybody, McCarthy is going to appoint to the committee, right?
3: As much as people put a lot of hope in the idea that this January 6th select committee is going to be an effective messenger and a tool of accountability for uh, uncovering and understanding what happened on January 6th. Let's face facts. First, it's likely to get mired in partisan mud fights the way House committees almost inevitably do. Its ability to actually get new information is going to be blocked to a certain degree by DOJ, who's going to want to be protecting their criminal prosecutions and who are likely to be trying to protect kind of the prerogatives of the executive branch from excessive, you know, excessive uh, investigations. Congressional committees, whatever their nature, have, over the course of the last 20 years, proven. Almost comically inept at issuing subpoenas and getting them enforced, all together tied up in a bow. And what is this committee actually going to be able to accomplish? I mean, I know I'm being really kind of negative and harsh here, but yeah, you know. You sound
2: like Issachov. <laughs> <laughs> I was oh, going
3: to no, say, oh, no. Keep going. Oh, no. Keep going, <laughs> Victoria. I, like this. I know I'm singing. This is, this is us together on something. It's like we can have a fight on voting rights later. <laughs> and,
2: well, you, yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned the critical thing, which is the ability of this committee to get new information. How many times, Isakoff, have we said on this podcast that at the end of the day, whether you're reporting or you're investigating, you need new information to advance the ball and to move the needle and use, pick whatever bad metaphor you you want to pick. I agree with everything you're saying. My The only caveat is you never know when, and this is true in the reporting that we do, you never know when new information uh, might come forth in ways that you least expect them to, to. Much time has passed since Donald Trump was in office. You don't know if there is someone, some whistleblower type who was in the White House uh, at the time who might be able to shed light and might be willing to shed light on what Donald Trump was doing during those critical hours. And so, maybe unlikely, but not impossible. And it's part of the reason that you do these high profile investigations, because you are looking for opportunities to attract and encourage um, people to come forward.
0: Look, The subpoena we all would love to see is the one to Kevin McCarthy to testify under oath before the committee about his conversation with Donald Trump that day in which, according to Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler, who was debriefed by McCarthy shortly after that phone call, Trump was completely dismissive of McCarthy's pleas to call off the mob, even sort of allegedly saying something to the effect of, you, you don't seem concerned about the, the theft of the election or from me, rather than the imminent threat to members of Congress that day. I really doubt McCarthy would even honor a uh, subpoena from this committee. Um, He'll inevitably say it's completely partisan and um, he's not gonna participate in a partisan witch hunt. But maybe, just maybe, Jamie Herrera-Butler the congresswoman from Washington, Republican, who first said McCarthy had told her all this, maybe she'll testify and maybe that will move the ball slightly.
3: And who was on the witness list for the Democrats during the second impeachment trial of of Donald Trump. If only they had gone through with it. Yeah. So, you know, and and let me add just one other kind of subpoena or or witnesses who would be great to hear from on the January 6th special committee. And that is the people who were mentioned in a recent series of pro-public reports, which indicates the kind of the closeness of the Trump campaign or some of the the members, former members of the Trump campaign in organizing the January 6th rally and their kind of ongoing efforts to recruit and be heavily engaged with some of these far right groups who were responsible for the storming of the Capitol.
2: I agree with that. One last thing, which is, you know, you've got the Justice Department investigation, but that investigation is looking at only... Criminal acts, and you had, of course, the impeachment um, investigation, but that was really rushed. And as we were saying all along, there was no
0: impeachment investigation. They just impeached them. The second there
2: essentially was no investigation. So this is, in some ways, the first kind of broad-based investigation that is looking at all aspects of what led to January six, what happened on January six, and then of course the impact of january 6th okay, so-, so danny
3: you've convinced me it's not going to be a complete waste of a waste of special he hasn't
0: convinced me but uh, in any <laughs> case um we've got an excellent guest to talk about all this so let's get to it with us Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, member of the Intelligence Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and author of the new revised paperback, Endgame, Inside the Impeachments of Donald J. Trump. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery.
1: Thank you, Michael. Yeah, we added four chapters and an S to the title.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, a uh, Impeachments, plural. Well, definitely want to ask you about that. But I want to start out with your lawsuit against former President Trump. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump Jr., and your Republican colleague, Mo Brooks, for their role in inciting the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Now as you know, uh, Congressman Brooks um, responded yesterday saying he is immune from civil suit because he was acting as a member of Congress when he gave his talk. At the January 6th rally, uh, President Trump has also asserted immunity. What's your response to their immunity claims? How do you get around it?
1: Well, what a freeloader, right? I mean, this is someone who spends every political hour he has saying the federal government shouldn't be involved in anyone's life, shouldn't give you health care, shouldn't help you get vaccinated. But he's asking for the Department of Justice to defend him. Uh, in this lawsuit, but he's not immune. He you know, was acting, as he said, on behalf of a request from the executive branch. So I think he's acknowledging that he uh, is kind of crossing branches to help a an executive branch candidate who is hosting a, not a official rally, but a rally as a candidate. So I, I don't buy the immunity defense. He also claims that he would not have done it but for Donald Trump asking, which seems to be the defense that so many of the hundreds of criminal defendants who've been arrested have made, uh, which again, I I think points to Donald Trump as being the chief instigator, assembler, insider here, but that doesn't mean Mo Brooks does not own some culpability. And so for us, it's really just about accountability, and Mo Brooks is one of the individuals who aimed that mob uh, at the Capitol. Just
0: one one quick follow-up on that, Uh, you know, of course, you impeached former President Trump over his um, his role, and we had a, a trial about that. We are now going to have a select committee that's going to investigate the events of January 6th. Why file, and of course the Justice Department has a very aggressive investigation going into the events of January 6th. Why do we need your lawsuit on top of the ongoing investigations by the Justice Department and Congress, and the House to have accountability for what happened.
1: It's, certainly, it's accountability that I want Donald Trump and others to have uh, for what they did to me as I was trying to count every American's vote and, and have them certified, uh, as well as the you know terror and trauma that I and my colleagues and the police officers suffered. Uh, so I, I don't think one effort you know excludes another effort. and I, I don't think you can hold Donald Trump accountable enough uh, for everything that he's done. And and so, yes, it it goes into many realms. There's certainly the criminal investigations that are taking place. There was the impeachment trial that convinced me as a manager that uh, Donald Trump was responsible. There's the select committee, which will also look at not only how this happened, but how do we make sure it does not happen again? Uh, And and also, it was frustrating, uh, Michael, that during the impeachment trial, we had the pressure coming down on us of a a Senate that, understandably, had to confirm, uh, you know, Joe Biden's cabinet and his uh, appointees, and so there were constraints on us uh, in that regard. Uh, there was the recognition that if Donald Trump and others refused to testify at the Senate trial, we would spend years in court litigating those subpoenas. And I am liberated from that in, in my lawsuit. I, I don't have those time constraints and time pressure, and and it really, uh, in, in my pursuit of accountability. I'm not limited by that to get the truth. By the way, what is the uh, judgment
2: that you're asking for here? I mean, are you asking for like a sort of a one dollar judgment just to s- symbolically make the point that this is about accountability, or are you asking for some other kind of
1: remedy? Well we're not at that state yet. Certainly, we allege you know the different torts of intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, as well as impeding me from doing my duty. Um, and, and certainly, that is one of the prayers for relief, as they call them. You know, there could be an injunction. There could be a you know financial penalty. It's certainly, you know, for me is mostly about accountability. And I'll, I'll let our lawyer, our legal team, and the judges, you know, sort out uh, where that ends up. But right now, it's really primarily about accountability. And if you're kind of tracking where are we right now, each side is you know responding to the other side's you know filings around the motion to dismiss and. That seems to be one of the biggest hurdles that we have to clear is to survive their motion to dismiss. And then you would go into the discovery process, which is essentially, you know, us seeking evidence in the case, seeking depositions from the parties to understand uh, their complete role.
3: Let me just follow up because you, you said something interesting, and it, it's also mentioned in your in your book, which is the diff- the incredible difficulty that Congress, as an institution, has in getting discovery and in getting information. In your book, you mentioned an incident where a news organization w- filing a FOIA request got better access to data than Congress did. You just mentioned in your lawsuit you're doing it because, as as an individual Congressperson, just as an individual suing, you have a better chance. Of discovery than Congress does. I mean, it, it really points out that Congress is almost, uh, you know, enfeebled as an independent investigative organization or entity nowadays. Is there, is that, first of all, do you concur with that kind of assessment of Congress's role? And is Congress doing anything to change that state?
1: Uh, reforms are, are needed. And Adam Schiff's Protect Our Democracy Act I would essentially. Actually, create a, a fast track for congressional subpoenas so you cannot Don McGahn Congress, where, you know, in the spring of 2019, the Mueller report comes out, the Judiciary Committee sees Don McGahn as a central figure, calls him in to testify, and it was just about a month ago that we actually were able to get him. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court before we were able to negotiate with the Department of Justice around his testimony. And, and that's just wrong that, you know, when you have abuses of power that are alleged and people are able to just run out the clock uh, that Congress isn't able to conduct its oversight authority. Uh, so, yes, th- that reform, I think, is needed. Also, you know, my, I did not file my lawsuit because I couldn't get we couldn't get information in the Senate. I'm just saying because I'm seeking accountability, a benefit, a collateral benefit of that uh, is that I, I believe we will have better ability uh, than Congress did uh, in seeking discovery.
2: Victoria was asking the kind of process question about how you get the information. But tell us about the information, the evidence that you are seeking, both in your own lawsuit and having been deeply involved in the um, impeachment investigation and then having been one of the, the managers in the Senate trial. What is the key evidence, the key information that you're seeking that the American people still need to know about January
1: 6th. So certainly there are a lot of gaps around what was Donald Trump doing the day of the attack? You know, we, we, we saw the footage of the insurrection tailgate where they're all, you know, in, in the tent watching the footage of the mob moving from the ellipse up to the Capitol. But, you know, what was Donald Trump being told by national security and law enforcement officials? Uh, what decision points was he making regarding sending a... What was he told? And of course, the, in the days before, you know, as there were these questions about should the National Guard be dispatched? What limitations should they have had? And then of course, uh, in the weeks before, because we know for you know, many, many weeks, the Trump campaign spent $50 million on Stop the Steal you know, email and digital ads. You know, how much direction uh, was given by Donald Trump? Because you know, he sent that 2 a.m. tweet uh, in mid December saying January six will be wild. Uh, and then there was just this barrage of tweets afterward. So what foreknowledge did he have about who was going to be there and, and why did he believe it was going to be so wild?
3: So we might think that the you know that the January sixth committee that was just created would be a key you know kind of player in figuring these sort of things out, but as you've just noted, Congress is pretty toothless in terms of its ability to pursue subpoenas to be magand. And if the shift, you know, and and so how much can we really expect this January sixth committee to be able to uncover, given how? you know, how handcuffed Congress is at getting information.
1: Yeah, I will say that they will be a little less handcuffed because now they will be subpoenaing people who are no longer in office. And so some of the protections they had don't exist uh, any further. But that doesn't mean they won't litigate them. And, and it will still take time because no, I don't think anyone expects Donald Trump is just going to walk in on his own accord. Uh, I don't think anyone expects that. You know, I pointed out Mark Short uh, in the book, you know, we had a good lead that Mark Short wanted to talk. He was with Mike Pence, you know, at the Capitol that day and, and sources were telling me and others that if you can get short in, once you can call witnesses, he would be a good witness to give you Pence's state of mind and Donald Trump's state of mind. I got his phone number. I texted him. I called him. He picked up and then hung up and then he called me back. And, you know, I, I thought, OK, here we go. Uh, wh- what are you going to tell me, Mark? And there was just silence on the other end. So I I don't know if it was a misdial or if he was trying to see who I was, uh, but then we got word from his lawyer after I had reached out a number of times uh, that he would not honor a subpoena. He would fight us in the courts uh, and it just felt like, you know, that was going to define any witness. So no
0: reason to expect he's going to do anything different when right. exactly the select right. committee comes to it. But let me ask you something else. Um, as you know, the uh, Merrick Garland Justice Department recently uh, filed uh, in court saying it was going to represent Donald Trump in a defamation lawsuit brought by Jean Carroll, a woman who says Donald Trump raped her. Um, many years ago and then defamed her when she went public with that there's been a lot of speculation that the same logic will hold to your lawsuit that the garland justice department will basically intervene to block your lawsuit against the former president saying he was acting as a chief executive of the United States and is therefore immune from civil suit. How concerned are you that the Garland Justice Department is gonna be your nemesis in this lawsuit? And what do you make of them representing uh, Trump in the uh, defamation case
1: brought by Gene Carroll? I think it's wrong in, in in the Carroll case. And if they were to represent Donald Trump or Mo Brooks or anyone else, uh, in my case, I think they might as well just say that we would represent any president in any case that they're sued. You know, whether it's a homicide case or whether it's uh, no. It, I mean, the
0: argument would be that the president was acting as part of his official duties as president, sure. and he was attending sure. no, I, I, I Congress the argument. to revisit uh, the. Um, um, yeah, no, I know, understand
1: it, the argument, Michael. The but I, I, I submit that when you hold a rally for your presidential campaign and you say you have to fight like hell and you don't have a country anymore and you tell the mob that you're going to go with them and the mob goes, you are so far outside the boundaries of your official duties. And as I said, this was done completely on the campaign side. He was sending you know, the emails that invited the mob on the campaign side. And so I, I think this is well outside the bounds uh, of being president. And then the Eugene Carroll case, again, just because he was at an official press conference, he was being asked about his personal, private, pre-presidential conduct, he can just decline to answer the question and say, I'll talk to you about that. It's not appropriate here. But instead, he smeared a sexual assault victim. And I think once he does that, you know, he, his personal private conduct uh, predominates any privileges that he should have uh, as president. So I, I hope the department doesn't do that there has to be boundaries for, you know, what's an official and what's uh, not protected. Let me ask
0: you something else about the Justice Department. You were, as has been amply reported, uh, recently informed that the Justice Department under Bill Barr had gotten your phone, phone records and email records as part of a leak investigation. You were quite outraged about that, but there's very little we know at this point about what was going on inside the Justice Department, what these leak investigations were, who approved them, were they targeting you or were they targeting others, and then your communications got swept up in the targeting of others. I know you've asked for information from the Garland Justice Department about this, What do you now understand the answers to those questions? What were the leak investigations? Who approved them and um, who was being targeted?
1: And Michael, uh, you remember this era because you were a dogged reporter trying to get to the bottom of what was going on with Russia. And I I, I first want to affirmatively say uh, I did not, have not, and since, uh, you know, will not uh, leak classified information. Uh, So I I, I never did that. Uh, I understand it's a reporter's job to get to the bottom of it but I did not do that. Uh, And and what concerns me is that the two people whose communications were sought uh, and received were myself and Mr. Schiff, who I think were the most vocal critics of the president at the time, which is why it's important that Attorney General Garland has an Inspector General investigation and that the Judiciary Committee also conduct, you know, a supplemental investigation. The Attorney General assured me, uh, he called me, uh, told me that it was the first he had heard of it and that he was going to you know, get to the bottom of it himself. So I, I don't have many answers right now, but it's hard for me to accept uh, any other reporting that I've seen out there that you know, we were just collaterally a part of a leak investigation that involved a staffer when, again, the two people whose records were obtained, as far as we know, were the most vocal critics. Uh, that just to me...
0: But, but you don't know what they were investigating. No. I don't. Right. You called on, uh, just one last question on this. After this came out, you said anybody involved in this at the Justice Department should be fired. Now, you know how these things work. There were career prosecutors who filed these subpoenas, who went into court to defend them, who argued that they should be kept under a gag order. They may have been operating under you know, strict instructions from Bill Barr and didn't really want to do it, but they were forced to do it. Or they may have thought they were legitimately doing an investigation under Justice Department guidelines. To pursue a leak. Was it really appropriate to say, absent you having answers to any of these questions, that career people, civil servants at the Justice Department should be fired when you don't even really know who was involved and what exactly they were doing?
1: Well, I guess, Michael, I know, and that's part of my frustration coming out You know, when I said that, but I know what I did and did not do. And I know that I did not leak. And I look at the fact that Adam Schiff and I were the only two members involved in this, that a a minor child uh, of a staffer was involved in this. And you have two attorney generals saying that they did not know about it, Barr and and Sessions. And so to me, if you are surveilling members of Congress who are critics of the president and the attorney general is is not being briefed on it, uh, one, that should be fireable. Uh, Two, I I don't really buy that they weren't briefed on it. And, And so it makes me wonder... Why didn't anybody say, look, this is, this is wrong. Uh, this is not what we do. And again, I, I'm saying this from the perspective of somebody who knows I was innocent. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I can't see any probable cause to go into my records. And so if you are going into my records, I think you're doing it unlawfully. And when you're doing that against the vocal critic of the president, I think there should be consequences.
2: Congressman, two quick follow-ups on this. One, you said that uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland called you about this, said he, he didn't know about it. What else did he say? Did he express uh, dismay? Uh, was he surprised, concerned? What did he tell you?
1: He was very kind. He called and he actually apologized that he had not called me you know, a day or two earlier. He'd just been so overwhelmed landing on the job. But he told me he did not know about this case until it broke Uh, in the news and that he was seeking to learn more uh, about it. And and again, I I told, I was very clear with him. I did not want to direct him in any way as to what to do or what I thought he should do, because that would be just as wrong. I just wanted to make sure that he understood, you know, the concerns that someone who has criticized the president would have if their records are being surveilled when, again, they know that there was no reason for that to happen. You
2: told him that you hoped that there would be a Inspector General investigation. Uh, As it turns out, the. Inspector General, the Justice Department's independent watchdog, Michael Horowitz, announced uh, that he is reviewing this episode. Um, Have they reached out to you? Have you been questioned in this probe at all yet? Do you know anything about uh, what they're uh, specifically, what they're looking at? Uh, What can you tell us about the IG investigation?
1: No, they have not. And and Again, I just want to make it clear that I don't know why my records or Mr. Schiff's records were probed. As somebody who knows that they did not leak, it's highly suspicious, but I'm willing to, you know, at least wait to see what the investigation uh, concludes. Uh, but to me, it, it is worthy of investigating, considering how vocal Mr. Schiff and I were of the prior administration and the prior attorneys general. But just to be
0: clear, is it your position that there are no circumstances in, under which uh, the Justice Department should subpoena the email and phone records of members of Congress?
1: No, so just the opposite. I, I don't think I'm above the law more than anyone else is above the law. My position is <laughs> knowing that I did not leak, I'm very curious as to how they would justify going in to my records. Uh, and so that's what concerns me. And again, I, I think you have to be extra careful when you are going into the records uh, of lawmakers who have been you know critical of the president. That doesn't make you immune, but that certainly I think means that the attorney general you know, should consider the damage you can do to institutions if critics feel like the punishment for speaking out is that you're going to have your records gone. Because I, so, I, assume no, not... you
0: would want, I assume you would want the, the current Justice Department to subpoena, if they f- have grounds, the records of Republican members of Congress who might have had interactions with uh, some of the organizers and participates in,
1: participants in January 6th. If they have probable costs, yes, but not just because they're opponents of the president. And, and again, I'm saying this from the perspective of someone who knows I did not leak. So it makes it very much concerns me that my records were looked at uh, when there's not a more likely than not scenario where I would have leaked.
3: So I want to take us back, if I can, to our, the first impeachment now. So uh, one of the criticisms, especially, that was raised by the Republicans during that first impeachment was that uh, it was baked in advance, basically, that the, the Democrats had intended to impeach Donald Trump from the minute he was sworn into office, that you were laying in wait for any sort of minor error that he might commit that could justify an impeachment. Thinking about that criticism, I'm wondering if the Republicans take Congress back in 2020 too. Do you anticipate that they will impeach Joe Biden?
1: No, we we impeached. Yeah, I can't predict what they will do. But I know that Speaker Pelosi, and I I laid this out in the book, was very careful to make sure that we had consensus among the Congress. There there was a call for impeachment the second Donald Trump was elected from some of my colleagues. And and Speaker Pelosi, you know, was very uh, careful to make sure that we only would do so uh, if we had evidence and, and reason to do so. and I, but, I, actually was, I mean,
3: do, do you think that the current leadership of the Republican Party has that same sense of restraint that Nancy Pelosi did, as you say, in 2017? And
1: No, I, I don't think Kevin McCarthy has any core set of principles or integrity that would restrain him. But I was, and I pointed it out in the book, I was one of the, I was a presidential candidate as much of this conduct was coming out. And I was one of the last presidential candidates to call for Donald Trump's impeachment because again, as a, a former prosecutor, I wanted to apply, you know, the, the, the rigors of uh, evidentiary law, you know, to this case to make sure that we actually did have the goods if we were going to move forward. And the impeachment of Donald Trump one foreshadowed what was going to come, which was in, in impeachment one, he was trying to rig the election before it happened by putting dirt on his opponent. And in impeachment two, he wasn't willing to accept the outcome of the election and was use, willing to use violence instead of you know, bribery to determine the outcome. And, and so uh, I don't regret at all that we impeached him. If anything, I regret that we didn't do more oversight of Donald Trump and others. I regret that we didn't impeach Bill Barr. And I was calling for that, if you recall, throughout the Barr days, that uh, we, should, we should impeach Barr before we impeach Trump for what he had done. Uh, with the Mueller report and the lies that he told to Congress around the report.
3: But don't you think, given the, the fervor of the Republican base arguing for, you know, uh, it, focusing, for example, on, on Hunter Biden's business dealings and whether or not Joe Biden knew about them, the fact that the many Republicans have already filed articles of impeachment against Joe Biden and what you say is, a, you know, kind of a lack of restraint on the part of Kevin McCarthy, don't you believe that there's a significant chance in 2023 if the Republicans take over control of the House that they will begin legitimately impeachment proceedings against Joe Biden?
1: Oh, yes. I, I, there's, a, there's a serious chance based on the dialogue and, and statements I've seen from my colleagues that they will try and do it. And, and again, I don't believe Kevin McCarthy has the restraint to stop them from doing it. And look, they, they sent a letter to the White House a couple of weeks ago asking Joe Biden to submit to like a health screening. I mean, this is how obsessed they are with trying to discredit Joe Biden. And and they had doctors, like actual medical doctors, uh, sign that letter. It it was embarrassing uh, that they did that. But again, I, I, I do think that's their goal. And Chip Roy said over the weekend, you probably saw in leaked audio footage, that he sees it as his role is essentially to grind government to a halt as he said, until December 2022, once they have won the majority. And so it it seems like they have no interest in passing any legislation as it relates to the American Families Plan or the American Jobs Plan, you know, that would lift up the lives of people who need it the most. It it seems like it's just a tear down Biden because he's a Democrat.
0: You know, one of the really interesting things in your book is um, you come from a family with a lot of Republican ties, I think your father was a Republican, your wife's family was very close to the Pence's in Indiana, yet your rhetoric over the last uh, uh, few weeks in particular has become increasingly harsh. Uh, in fact, in a, one recent MSNBC appearance, you referred to the Republican Party, you said it's a pro-slavery, anti-police party that is rolling with the cop killers right now. now You know, you have a president, Democratic president, Joe Biden, who is trying to reach across the aisle with some, uh, get some bipartisan legislation through. Is it really helpful to be calling your fellow Republicans, pro-slavery when as far as I know there's not a single Republican office holder who has endorsed or uh, per- uh, you know uh, protected slavery I mean come on aren't you contributing to the hyper partisanship uh, in this country right now that is roiling our politics
1: well Michael over a hundred Republicans voted to keep Confederate statues in the halls of Congress that celebrated right. what the Confederacy stood for, slavery. So to me, if, if you're but, voting but to look, keep the them- But look,
0: the Confederate monuments have been up for years, for over a century now. And Monument Row in Richmond was there for- the last for, you know, since the post-Civil War era, we've had African-American mayors in Richmond who didn't take them down. We've had Democratic governors in Richmond, in Virginia, who didn't take them down. To say anybody who doesn't take down Confederate monuments is therefore pro-slavery would seem to many people as a stretch.
1: Well, I, I think we've had a conversation, a national dialogue in the last couple of years around race. And the consensus among most Americans is that those monuments do not belong in the Capitol. And so to me- Fair enough,
0: but anybody on the other side is endorsing slavery?
1: I don't know what else you're endorsing if you want to keep them at the Capitol. But Michael, again, I I come from a Republican family. I ran against a 40-year Democratic incumbent and I won by knocking on Republican doors, making calls to Republican voters, having Republican mayors and council members endorse me. And for four years, two-thirds of the legislation I worked on and and supported was bipartisan. And and so I wouldn't say that I changed. To me, Donald Trump came in, and he was the cancer that completely destroyed the Republican Party. And there aren't many Republicans across the aisle to work with right now. It's really a party that believes in a cult personality. And so I'm not any less willing to work with Republicans as I was when I got elected. I'm just not willing to work with people that supported an insurrection that you know continue to make these comparisons you know, to the Holocaust and, and not rightfully condemn them to stand against the cops who defended the Capitol that day. So I, I am going to speak out because I look at it as we thought 2020 was this battle between Trumpism and democracy and it would be resolved. And instead, I think we found ourselves in overtime right now that it wasn't resolved and that it's very fragile. And only one is going to come out of the ring, and so yeah, I'm going to punch as hard as I can to make sure democracy, not Trumpism, comes out of the ring in 2022.
2: Let me, let me, Congressman, let me pick on that, pick up on that. The point about Donald Trump turning the Republican Party into a cult of personality, because you know the the one of the big takeaways of your book is that you know it was crucial to impeach this president not once but twice. But I guess the question is. At the end of the day, you know, the first impeachment uh, trial was, you know, pretty much a party line vote. You got a few more Republicans in the second trial. But make the case uh, that uh, these impeachments, other than, you know, the sort of stain of the historical stain, really has an impact because he still controls the Republican Party. And as you just said, there are not a lot of Republicans that you uh, and other Democrats can work with. He still has a very good chance of being the Republican nominee in 2024. What is the argument that you make in the book? Just tell our, our listeners yeah. uh, that this was a crucial thing to do.
1: Well, first and foremost, at the time, you know, again, remember the mindset we had when we filed the articles of impeachment uh, the Wednesday after uh, the insurrection was that we didn't know what was going to happen between that day and the inauguration. And so we were seeking to remove him immediately. Uh, We we had hoped that the Senate would recognize the threat that he had brought and that, you know, we could have a violent uh, inauguration day. And so that was our first and foremost consideration: How do you get him out of office before you have a violent inauguration day and there were multiple threat strands coming in, regarding, you know, efforts that were going to be there to be violent on the 20th. And that's why the Capitol looked like a fortress uh, on that day. Second, We wanted to make sure, you know, beyond the 20th, once he did leave office, that he could never run again, because it is our belief that he will not run again and win again. And we're not, I'm not afraid of that, but that he would run again and again, aim a mob at the Capitol uh, because he did not like the outcome. And so if you could prevent him from running again, you could, in theory, protect the country from going through something like January 6th again. Nothing has changed since January 6th, right? I don't think you know, we've not been able to pass the bipartisan funding bill in the Senate that we passed in the House, you know, for funding the Capitol Police. So we're just as vulnerable as far as a security posture. Donald Trump is telling people that he's coming back in August and he's got these audits going on around the country. So I don't think we're any less vulnerable to Donald Trump inciting, assembling and aiming a mob, you know, at democracy than we were on January 5th. And and so that's why I think we have to keep holding this guy accountable and bring the pressure down on him, uh, until, you know, this demon to democracy uh, is defeated.
0: You were, of course, very involved in the first impeachment of, uh, of Donald Trump as well, hence the plural in the uh, subtitle of your, of your book, but also which, which really grew out of the Mueller investigation in Russia. In fact, it, you know, it's still striking that uh, the infamous uh, notorious phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine takes place the morning after Mueller's testimony um, before the House, but you were you were critical of Mueller as well for not going after Trump's financial records. Said so that was a big gap in the investigation into Russia. But Cyrus Vance Jr. has gotten those tax records of Donald Trump. Um, the Biden Treasury Department through the IRS, of course, has them. And Vance, in his uh, uh, criminal indictment uh, last week, uh, doesn't go after Trump for anything related to his finances with Russia. There's been no indication that the Justice Department is examining them either. Does that raise a question as to whether the evidence you were convinced was there in those financial records may not have been there after all?
1: I think it's too early to determine uh, what vance has or doesn't have um there could be more indictments coming i i, I just think it, it's too early and the public has, does not have access and rightfully so because it's an ongoing investigation uh but that doesn't mean moeller you know shouldn't have looked and, and in the book i, I described the frustration that you know donald trump created this arbitrary artificial red line of his finances and just as donald trump masterfully does he was able to convince someone really smart with a lot of integrity like bob Mueller, not to cross it uh, just because he created it out of thin air And, and that bared out in Mueller's testimony to the intelligence and judiciary committees that uh you know they recognized you know the the pressure of time that donald trump was constantly calling it a witch hunt saying it had gone on too long when most white collar investigations take years and this one had moved at a record clip are you saying Bob
0: Mueller was intimidated by Donald Trump?
1: I think the I think the Mueller, I think Bob Mueller recognized that the longer it went on, the more political pressure he would face, and he wanted to avoid protracting the investigation with a financial investigation and subpoenaing Trump and Trump's banks. So he didn't go that direction. So yes, Trump won. I don't know if he was intimidated or not. Trump won though. That was you know that was. Uh, if you follow the Sean Maloney questioning of Bob Mueller about why didn't you ask Trump to testify and essentially why didn't you go after the finances, Mueller acknowledged how long it would have taken to fight that in the court. And so that was uh, you know, point to Trump. Because who the hell, Michael, who, who the hell cares if it takes too long, right? Like you just you, yeah. you do it. Like if it was any other white collar criminal, you just fight him in the courts and then you get it.
0: The Bob Mueller in his day, as FBI director for many years, I don't think would have backed down uh, if he
1: thought he and, had the evidence. I it so much respect. For it. I don't even want to give Michael. I don't want to give equivalence between Bob Mueller and Donald Trump because Bob Mueller was a hero on the battlefield. He was a hero at the FBI. He, he's a national treasure. I'm just saying on that on that match, uh, the point went to Trump, and I think that was a loss for what we could have learned about the finances.
0: One final question. As you look back uh, on the two impeachments, is there anything that you would have done differently?
1: I think impeaching Barr. I, I wish I would have been more vocal about impeaching Bill Barr. I, I think that may have slowed Donald Trump down if, if we took his attorney general, you know, who he thought was one of his best uh, you know, weapons, someone who weaponized the Justice Department, if, if we took him off the field, or at least you know, subjected him to an impeachment trial for his conduct. I, I, I wish I'd been louder about that.
0: And then at the end, Barr stood up to Trump and refused to go along with his stop the steal nonsense.
1: But to me, to me Michael, it, when you see that very blunt interview that, that Barr recently had, it, it looks like he stood up to Trump because they were afraid of losing the Senate. I mean, that's what's so frustrating. Well, Mitch McConnell but, was concerned yeah, about that. McConnell, yes. McConnell right. as shrewd as he is, as smart as he is, recognized Trump was a liability because all he was talking about was the steal when he needed Loeffler and Purdue to win those early January runoff races. And so I don't even know if Barr stood up for the right reason. It, it feels like he just stood up because he needed Trump to shut up so that they could keep the Senate.
0: Well, maybe because there was absolutely no evidence to support what Trump wanted him to do. So, I mean, you know, it may have been as simple as that. Um, Anyway, um, I want to um, thank you for joining us once again. I love
1: the podcast and thank you guys for reading the book and asking the tough questions.
3: I want to know what uh, what dinner with uh, with uh, Sheldon Adelson, Kellyanne Conway and John Boehner really was like, what was it? What was it? What was it really like?
1: (laughs) So, Victoria, this was uh, January 20, uh, 2017. So Donald Trump is sworn in. A lot of my constituents asked me not to go to the inauguration. And I insisted that it was our job to watch the transition of power and to hold him accountable. What I did not realize was that after the swearing in as a member of House leadership. Uh, you host a lunch for the new president and vice president. And so I'm going to my table assignment, like, you, you know, you're at a wedding and you have the ceremony. Now you're going to the reception. You look at your table card and I see my table and there's one empty seat and it's next to Sheldon Adelson and Kellyanne Conway. And I just thought, boy, I must have pissed Speaker Pelosi off uh, if she's-, <laughs> <laughs> she's a part of the, you know, setting the table. And, I said to Kellyanne, I said, you know, Kellyanne, I'm, I'm so, hi, I'm Eric Swalwell. I'm so sorry that you won a presidential election and your first reward is you have to sit next to a Bay Area de- Democrat. And she wasn't amused and, and really didn't engage me. Instead, leaned across me for most of the conversation to talk to Sheldon, uh, I guess. <laughs> She had read She had read where I landed on the
3: congressional
1: like melt, <laughs> which was like at the very bottom.
3: I really like Sheldon Adelson's suggestion about the uh, phone number system at the at the White House, so maybe you can fill us in on what his suggestion yeah, yeah.
1: was. He, he was complaining to her how hard it was to get a hold of anyone there, and, and he said that he just he made every number at his business essentially sequential. so if he couldn't get, you know, the senior VP who was one, two, three, four he could call 1235 and get the next, you know, uh senior person and just go down the line and he was recommending to Kellyanne that they create that type of system. And I just remember her again agreeing with anything he said because he's Mr. Moneybags and saying, "Sheldon, I'll tell him that." And she kept emphasizing him. Well,
2: I'm 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 shocked Congressman Swalwell that uh in your first act as a member of Congress in that new administration, that new administration, you didn't introduce the uh, the Sheldon Adelson White House Telephone Reform Act.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Anyway,
0: all right, lots of uh, lots of nuggets in uh, Congressman Swalwell's book. It's called Endgame, Inside the Impeachments of Donald J. Trump, now out in paperback. And until next time, thank you again, Congressman.
1: Thank you all. All right, I'll see you guys.